following sermon is from Faith Bible Church, located in Murrieta, California. More information about Faith Bible Church is available at www.faith-bible.net. If you would go ahead and open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 6. Genesis chapter 6. And this morning... We continue our walk through the Old Testament. We started it last week looking at the entire book of Genesis. And like you just heard this morning, we're going to focus and narrow in on just one story. Could be the most familiar story or one of the most familiar stories in the Bible. We call it Noah's Flood. And if we were to answer Pat's question that he asked in that video directly and honestly, when we think of Noah's Flood, we think of a big boat, typically with a giraffe coming out one window and an elephant balancing it on the other side, with Noah standing at the top, just a little shutter, door windows, hands out, a dove flying with an olive branch in its mouth, and the whole thing framed by a beautiful rainbow. Am I right? That's it. But that's not enough. It doesn't capture all that's happening in the story. Because here in Genesis 6 through 9, we're going to see that God sends a flood of water that covers the entire earth, destroying all of life, saving only Noah and his family. It's a story of both the judgment and the salvation of God. In fact, you could say that outside of the cross of Jesus Christ, the flood is the greatest demonstration of the judgment of God in human history. Now, to get us going and into this, I want to give you some prerequisites, just some fundamental ideas, kind of like you're sitting in a college class. These four ideas will help us frame our time and move into this message together. The first is that we want to use a literal interpretation of Scripture, literal interpretation of Scripture. This means that in very simple layman's terms, we take the Bible at face value according to both its grammatical and historical context. Uh, Said very simply, we take it literally. The book of Genesis is not full of symbols, allegory, figures of speech. Rather, it is a narrative. It is an account. It is a chronicle of what happened in the days of Noah. Said in a different way, one more time, reading the Bible in a normal, literal way leads us to the conclusion that there was a flood of water designed by God that covered the entire earth. Now, coming out of that, our second prerequisite is that this is a true story. This is a true story. And this is the logical conclusion of what taking Scripture at its face value means. Uh, Let me say it this way. Noah was a real man. And the events of Genesis 6 through 9 are historical events. Did you know that there are more than 270 flood traditions across our planet that still exist today? In cultures across North America, South America, Asia, Europe, Africa, and Australia. Did you know that the islands of Fiji and Hawaii have flood narratives? That the Hawaiians believe in a man named Nu'u who got onto a big boat and saved the world, basically, or or was saved from a flood. The the stories are everywhere. There is historical evidence. There is geological evidence. There is fossil evidence. There is the Grand Canyon. There are the remains of fish fossilized on top of the highest mountains in the world. And every now and then, if you're paying attention, Time Magazine or some Newsweek article will talk about the fact that up on Mount Ararat, somewhere in Turkey, at 14,000 feet, an expedition stumbled across some old wood up on a mountain, and it's a boat. And it's visible at only certain times of the year when the snow melts just ever so much. And just as soon as the story comes and piques our interest, it's gone. And we never hear anything about it again. Does it matter if Noah's Ark is found? Would that change our world? I don't think so. Jesus said in Luke 8, uh, 16, 31, if they did not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. In other words, you have the Bible and that is enough. It is a book of faith. Noah built an ark trusting in the word of God And we look to the Bible also trusting in that same word. 
For those this morning who are new with us, maybe you're skeptic about the things of God or antagonistic toward all of this. You came this morning. Thank you for coming. I just want to welcome you this morning. And I think this is a great morning to be here uh, because in the story of Noah and his flood, we have the entire Bible in miniature. So you're going to hear about the great storyline of the Bible through this story. And if you've ever, ever wondered why the world is broken and why evil seems to dominate, why nations go to war, why there's murder and abuse and rape uh, and so much violent crime, why is there so much evil in this world? And why is there no justice? In this story, we see how God deals with wickedness. And we'll see his justice put on display. And we'll see that he offers hope and salvation to all who have been affected by sin. Our third prerequisite, it's kind of a long one, so stay with me. The Bible provides the what? Um, that God flooded the earth with water. The Bible provides the why, it was as a judgment for sin, but the Bible gives us very little of the how, all of those curious details. And we are curious, aren't we? We want to know what happened and how it happened. My curiosity takes me down the aisle at the supermarket where I pick up a bag of chips and I go, oh, they got those in mesquite flavor now. Look at that. I think they're making those out of... They're not making them out of mosquitoes, are they? So, old Seinfeld joke. But I think Noah could have very easily gone like this. Ah! Got it. And saved us from right, a ton of issues. But all, but all the questions in our curiosity, could that many animals actually fit on the ark? Were there dinosaurs on the ark? All you geeks are just answering the questions. Did, how did kangaroo, kangaroos get to Australia? Did it rain before the flood? Did people really live for 900 years? Well, the Bible doesn't focus on the how. It tells us the what, that there was a worldwide flood. It tells us the why, that it was a supernatural act of judgment for sin. And as such, in this sermon, we will not have time to focus on the how too much. But rather, we're here to look at the bigger picture of what God is trying to communicate in this story. But as an aside, if you do want to geek out later, there are two resources you should go to that are phenomenal. One is called the Creation Research Institute, and the other is called Answers in Genesis. Both are online and are fantastic. Fourth prerequisite, briefly, is the cycle of judgment and salvation. You saw this in the video. I'm saying it again. Throughout the Bible, we see the twin stories of judgment and salvation. One author calls it the two-beat rhythm of biblical history. The salvation of God is the great theme of the Bible. And every story, including the flood, is ultimately pointing toward the salvation that is offered through the Lord Jesus Christ. In Genesis 6 through 9, we'll see God judge sin while at the same time magnifying his own glory as he saves undeserving sinners. All right, that's our backdrop. Let's dive into the story. Point number one in your outlines, judgment is caused by sin. Judgment is caused by sin. Multiple times in Genesis 1, we saw this last week in the creation accounts, God looks at his creation day uh, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, and he says, it is good, it is good, it is good. And the final verse, chapter 1, verse 31, he looks at his entire creation and he says, it is very good. He placed our first parents, Adam and Eve, in the perfection of Eden, that garden paradise. He established an intimate relationship with them, sharing his creation and giving them dominion over it. But in chapter 3, Adam and Eve chose to disobey God to eat the fruit, to hide from him, and they, uh, in that act, plunged the entire human race into sin. God judged the world and banished them, sent them out from the garden. In chapter 4, two brothers, Cain kills his younger brother Abel. And then we get here to chapter 6, and things have gotten even worse. Look down at verse 5. It says, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every evil, excuse me, every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil 
continually. There are three aspects of sin given in this verse. I'd just like to point them out to you briefly. First, sin is external. It is external. Look back at verse five. It says, the Lord saw the wickedness of man and he saw that it was great on the earth. That sin was visible. The the wickedness was evident. The evil was in plain view for all to see. Sin had multiplied. It's described there as great on the earth. It is not happening in a back alley or behind a closed door. It is not hidden. Rather, it's out in the public sight. It's out in the open. I can't help but think of Las Vegas. I drove through it just a couple days ago. Its moniker is Sin City. People go there to be in anonymity to fulfill their wildest fantasies and sinful pleasures. And they do it in broad daylight, in a public setting. It is on display. Everybody come here. This is what we do here. In an external, visible way, sin is external. And so it was in the days of Noah. Secondly, sin is internal. Look back at verse 5. Notice the phrase, the thoughts of his heart was evil. The thoughts of his heart was evil. It's not just about the external manifestation of sin. It's about what's happening on the inside. This is where sin begins. This is where sin resides. In James chapter 1, verse 14, it says that each of us is tempted when we are enticed and carried away by our own lusts, our own internal cravings and longings and desire. Uh, Jesus adds to this in Matthew 15, 19. He says, for out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, and slanders. We know that God looked down from heaven and saw the external sin on planet earth. But this verse tells us that he sees the very evil that is in the heart of man. Hebrews 4.13 says, nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. You see, God looks inside of every man, every woman, every child, and sees every purpose, every intention, and every motive. In the quietness of your heart, God is there. In the most secret part of your existence, God sees all. The perfect and holy God of the universe sees and knows you. He knows what you do in the darkness and quiet of your room when no one is watching. He knows what websites you surf. He knows what text messages you send. And even the secret sin that no one else knows about is on broad display in the daylight to God. Sin is external. Sin is internal. Thirdly, sin is pervasive. It is pervasive. Look back at verse five at these three phrases. Every intent, only evil, and continually. You see those three? That tells us that sin is not just a passing thought or something that happens once in a while. In this time, it was a continual, uninterrupted, persistent, and pervasive evil. And it wasn't just in a few people. It wasn't just in a couple of pockets of society. It is everywhere. Now, it might surprise you to know that the Bible does not describe people as generally good. Did you know that? The Bible doesn't talk about us having a good nature, that we do good things by nature and we, by doing enough good things, can work our way to heaven. In fact, it says quite the opposite. Jeremiah, in Jeremiah 17, 9, said, the heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? David said in Psalm 14, 3, there is no one who does good, not even one. His son Solomon said in Ecclesiastes 9, 3, the hearts of the sons of men are full of evil and insanity is in their hearts throughout their lives. You go, whoa, that's pretty strong. But that's all Old Testament. I'm sure it's better in the New Testament, right, when Jesus came. Well, let's see what Jesus said. He said that man is by nature evil in Luke eleven thirteen that he has a hard heart in Matthew 19.8, that he loves darkness in John 3.19, and that he's no better than a barren tree in Matthew 7.17. Summing all of this up, God says in Jeremiah 2.29, you have all transgressed against me. It was so bad that 
6, 6, Genesis says, the Lord, look down there, the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. That word for sorry is the word regret. God regretted making man. At the end of verse 6, it says, God, you see it there, was grieved in his heart. That word for grieve means to lament or to groan. It is to, to be hurt or to be in pain. One writer said, God's heart has been broken by man. And so Nahum chapter 1 verse 3 says, God will not let the guilty go unpunished. He judged Adam and Eve in Genesis 3, banishing them from the garden. He judged Cain in Genesis 4, banishing him from humanity and sending him out to be a wanderer. And now in Genesis 6, he judges the entire human race. Look, look down at verse 7. He says, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them. He sees sin and his response is judgment. The holiness of God will not dwell in the same place as sin. He will respond to protect his holiness and he will judge sin. That word there in verse 7, to blot out, we could say it's to erase. It is to wipe out. It is to eradicate, to obliterate. Uh, To illustrate this, when uh, I was 18 and my older sister was 20, my parents were remodeling their house, and on, on one wing of the house, we didn't really have wings. It was just one side of the house, a big family room area. There's a big wall, about maybe 15, 20 feet across and eight feet high. Uh, and uh, on that drywall there, they were coming to do a bunch of stuff, fix up the house, put carpet and do all sorts of things. Anyway, I got my friend who was an, an artist a uh, really good artist, got him a bunch of cans of spray paint, and he came and sprayed in graffiti a happy birthday sign uh, to my sister, giant sign. And then he had some animals over here and some cool things over there, and then there were still these open spaces. So for the birthday party, all of the friends came, myself included, with big, different color Sharpies, thick markers, and wrote on the wall, um, Jen, I love you. You're my big little sister because she comes up to here on me, but she's my big sister, so um, I, you know, happy birthday. And all over the wall, just, just, this thing was awesome, so cool. A couple weeks later, the painters came, and they taped up the ceiling, and they taped up the sides, and they threw down their tarp, and they opened their paint, and they put their rollers in, and slowly but surely... They began to erase the messages and then the happy birthday sign and finally the animals until that wall was completely blotted out. There was nothing left. That's what's being described here, total and complete annihilation. So in Genesis 6, we see an external, internal, pervasive wickedness and God decides to wipe it out. All of it, not just man, but every animal, every creeping thing, and every bird. It is a statement of the evilness of sin, the wickedness of sin, the sinfulness of sin, and it shows God's utter hatred for sin. And so we could say that judgment is caused by sin. Secondly, judgment is delayed by patience. Judgment is delayed by patience. God's statement of judgment is in verse 13. He said to Noah, the end of all flesh has come before me for the earth is filled with violence because of them and behold, I'm about to destroy them with the earth. Make for yourself an ark of gopher wood. God talks about his judgment that's coming and tells and gives no instruction to go and build an ark. And he, he says, build it this big, this wide, this tall, etc. And in verse 17, he then describes the coming judgment, saying, behold, I, even I, am bringing the flood of water upon the earth to destroy all flesh, in which is the breath of life from under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall perish. Does anyone know how much time passed 
between the instruction to build the ark there in 614 and the first drop of rain found in chapter 7, verse 11. Okay, there you go. You're right. Look back at chapter 6, verse 3. The Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever because he also is flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. The answer is 120 years. But that brings up another question. Why did God wait so long? Why did he delay? If the thoughts of the heart is only evil continually, if wickedness is great on the earth, if this, the whole thing is sliding down into pervasive evil, why did he wait? Listen, it's because he's patient. Isn't that what Peter says in 1 Peter 3.20? The patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. That word in 1 Peter 3 for patient in the original language can be defined as a state of emotional calm in the face of being provoked. God kept waiting. Romans 2.4 says, Do you not think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? 120 years is a long time to wait. A lot can happen. I went to the worldwide interweb to see what's happened in the last 120 years. I'll just give you a brief history. 120 years ago, the Wright brothers filed a patent and later in the year flew for the first time. Ford Motor Company was formed. PepsiCo was formed. The Yankees were sold for $18,000. They're now worth $7.1 billion. 120 years ago, listen to this one, on sports, there was a pitcher who pitched a doubleheader, two complete games, and lost both of them. That's, that's tough. We don't even let guys throw 100 pitches anymore. These guys, two complete games. But let me, let me walk this through. Last 120 years, women can vote. World War I, the Great Depression, the cathode ray tube, the television. World War II, the invention and the detonation of the atom bomb. The four-minute mile was broken. I Have a Dream by MLK. JFK was assassinated. Beatlemania. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. The Chernobyl disaster. The personal computer. The internet. The iPhone. The sequencing of the human genome. COVID-19. And lastly, Chick-fil-A becomes the top fast food restaurant in America, and they do it on just six days a week. <laughs> Amazing. But 120 years is a long time, and God waited patiently. And what was happening? Why was he waiting? What was going on during those 120 years? Noah was doing two things. He was following God's instruction, and he was building a boat. The boat would be 450 feet long, it would be 75 feet wide. It would be 45 feet tall. He was building and he was preaching. 2 Peter 2.5, Peter calls Noah a preacher of righteousness. Noah didn't have a lot of messages. He wasn't worried about um, bringing in money to the church. He wasn't worried about um, how you can have your best life now. He wasn't worried about um, your, your, your finances or talking about sex life or other things that go on in churches today. Noah preached one message over and over again for 120 years. Judgment is coming. And you must be ready. In 120 years, do you know how many converts he had? Seven. His wife, his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and his sons' wives. That was it. No one listened, and no one cared. Jesus said in Luke 17 26, they were eating, 
They were drinking, they were marrying, they were being given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. They completely ignored his message. I'm sure they ridiculed, mocked, called him crazy old man Noah, right? His ridiculous end of the world stories in that gigantic boat. But he kept preaching and he kept building and God kept waiting and waiting and waiting. At Christmas last year, I was at Starbucks. I ran in. It was the evening. It was a Friday night. There was one person ahead of me. Oh, perfect. He ordered 160 gift cards. <laughs> I'm, I'm not kidding, because when he left 20 minutes later, I said, how many was that? The receipt literally went to the floor. I, that's irritating, isn't it? <laughs> I, I don't have patience in my life. Romans 2.4 says that God is rich in patience. 1 Timothy 1.16 says that God's patience is perfect. 2 Peter 3.9 says that God is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. For 120 years, God waited patiently. But eventually, number three, judgment comes when mercy ends. Or judgment comes when patience ends. Look at 7.11. In the six. 100th year of Noah's life. In the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on the same day, all the fountains of the great deep burst open and the floodgates of the sky were open. Do you notice the detail there on the date? Why, why are we given that by Moses? Because, listen, this is history. This was a life-altering, planet-altering event that happened in real time on a specific date. Let me illustrate for those of you who are old enough, where were you when JFK was assassinated? For those of you who are old enough, where were you when the Twin Towers came down? It's burned indelibly into our minds because those events changed us and changed the world around us. This flood is no exception with the exact date burned into history. Now look back at verse 11, at that phrase. You see it there, the fountains of the deep? Most likely this refers to reservoirs that were deep inside the earth's crust that exploded altogether and like a volcano erupted with water and rocks shooting out into the sky and then like a broken pipe began to fill and to flood from the ground up. Water came up. The next phrase says in verse 11, the floodgates of the sky were opened. Now, there's some speculation amongst creationists that this was a, some type of a water canopy layer, a thick atmospheric element that blocked UV rays, that gave the earth some type of a greenhouse effect um, that allowed people to live longer and allowed certain animals to grow larger. Um, and this began pouring out water. We don't know the details on that. That's speculation. But we do know, according to verse 12, that the rain that came down, look there, it says it fell upon the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. It's a heavy downpour a monsoon-like deluge. It's a constant and consistent rain for 40 days. Look at verse 13. On the very same day, Noah and Shem and Ham and Japheth, the sons of Noah and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons with them, entered the ark, they and every beast after its kind and all the cattle after their kind and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth after its kind and every bird after its kind, all sorts of birds. So they went into the ark to Noah by twos of all flesh in which was the breath of life. Those that entered, male and female of all flesh, entered as God had commanded him. And look at that final phrase in verse 16. And the Lord closed it behind him. The people entered. The animals entered. Must have been quite a scene. 85,000 animals. Now we don't know. But thank you, Ezra, for that. Uh, and Watch. Then God closed the door. In so much of Scripture, we see the hand of God as the hand of salvation reaching down towards those in desperate plight. 
offering help, offering rescue, offering another chance, but not on this day. The day of mercy has passed, and this is the day of judgment. Now, we don't have time to unpack this entirely, but there are three characteristics of judgment that we see in the flood. The first is that judgment is supernatural. It is supernatural. That is to say, it is the direct act of God. It is his judgment unleashed on the world. In Genesis 19, God rained down fire from heaven consuming Sodom and Gomorrah. In Exodus 14, he struck down the firstborn of all of Egypt. In Numbers 16, the ground literally swallowed up the sons of Korah and his family. And in 2 Kings chapter 19, it says the angel of the Lord killed 185,000 Assyrian Assyrian soldiers in the night. And so when we look back at chapter 6, look at verse 17. God says this. This is his act. He says, Behold, I, even I, am bringing the flood of water upon the earth to destroy all flesh. Fast forward to 7 verse 4. I will send rain on the earth 40 days and 40 nights, and I will blot out from the face of the land every living thing that I have made. This flood was not a natural disaster. It was not a merging of atmospheric rivers and bomb cyclones and whatever else our climatologists want to give us for next year. This was an act of God. It's a disruption in the space-time continuum in which God alters the created order as an act of judgment. There's a phrase in Psalm 29, verse 10. It says, The Lord sat as king over the flood. In 2 Peter 2, 5, it says, He did not spare the ancient world when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. This judgment was supernatural. Secondly, it was devastating. It was devastating. In 7.17, it says, Then the flood came upon the earth for 40 days, and the water increased and lifted up the ark so that it rose above the earth. And the water prevailed, watch that phrase, the water prevailed and increased greatly upon the earth, and the ark floated on the surface of the water, and the water prevailed more and more upon the earth, so that all the high mountains everywhere under the heavens were covered, and the water prevailed 15 cubits higher, and the mountains were covered. This is not a local flood like Katrina or a tsunami in Indonesia that hits for a short time and then subsides. This was a cataclysmic event that reshaped the entire planet. The splitting of continents, the moving of land masses, the formation of new mountains as the earth is being jarred by massive earthquakes. Billions of gallons of water are moving across the land, creating catastrophic landslides uh, and mudslides, stampedes of animals, uprooting forests, leveling buildings, wiping out cities in a nonstop torrential torrent of water. In 2 Peter 3, verse 6, it's described saying, the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. Do you remember in the creation account? It's on day two. In Genesis 1, 7, it says, God separated the waters above from the waters that were below the expanse, in effect creating an atmosphere. Then on day three, He gathers the water into one place, creating dry land so that plants could grow and man and animals would have a place to dwell. Speaking of day three, directly in Psalm 104, verse six, the psalmist says, the waters were standing above the mountains. At your rebuke, they fled. At the sound of your thunder, they hurried away. The mountains rose, the valleys sank down to the place which you established for them. In Proverbs 8, 29, it says that God set a boundary for the sea. But here, he has removed that boundary. Now stay with me. God created this perfect world paradise. But in the flood, as the fountains of the deep are bursting open and the floodgates of the sky are pouring down rain, it is as if God has merged those two bodies of water, removing the dry land and undoing his creation taking us all the way back to day two. The earth was once again formless and void. One commentator called it a featureless waste of water. God's judgment is devastating. It is supernatural. Third, it is inescapable. It is inescapable. Look at 721. 
It says, all flesh that moved on the earth perished. Birds and cattle and beasts and every swarming thing that swarms upon the earth and all mankind. Of all that was on the dry land, all in whose nostrils was the breath of the spirit of life died. Thus, he blotted out every living thing that was upon the face of the land from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky and they were blotted out from the earth and only Noah was left together with those that were with him in the ark. Every bug, every reptile, every rodent, every animal, every bird, every person died. I just was thinking through this. My little brain Smaller, simpler animals that had less mobility would have been swept away and died quickly. Those larger, stronger animals would have lasted longer. But the apex of creation, that smartest and most clever, was man. He would have lasted the longest. He'd have strategized. He'd have logically figured out what to do next. He would have moved to higher ground. He would have climbed trees, built boats, got to the top of mountains. We'd walk out the door, and there's hills there. We need to get to the top. He'd figure out a way, do whatever's possible to stay alive. It's estimated that there were some 7 billion people on the planet at this time. Those who knew Old man Noah, the crazy preacher that preached fire and brimstone with that gigantic monstrosity in his front yard, driving down our property values, those that knew him, they would have run to that massive ship. Don't you think? That's where they would have gone. But when they arrived, hoping that there was room even for them because it was such a big boat, certainly there's room for me, for my family. But the door was already closed and there was no way to enter They would have called out to Noah, let us in. They would have circled the ark, banging on the sides. The water's at my ankles. The water's at my waist. The water's over my head. For my family, for my kids, for my wife, help us. Noah, please, I'm begging you. We're going to die. Those screams and cries of the damned would eventually be replaced by an eerie silence as Noah and his family were left alone. This is a world of people who hated God, who rejected him in their lives, and who were all thrown into hell at the same time. Hebrews 10.31 says, it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Commentator Jim Boyce writes, yet just at this point, when the black thunderclouds of God's wrath against human sin are at their most threatening, a small crack appears and grace shines through. That takes us to point number four. Judgment is avoided because of grace. Judgment is avoided because of grace. Look at chapter eight, verse one. But God remembered Noah Don't you love the but gods of the Bible? In Genesis 19.29, God remembered Abraham. In Genesis 30.22, God remembered Rachel. In Psalm 9 verse 12, God remembers the afflicted. In Psalm 136.23, he remembers us in our lowly estate. Here in 8.1, God remembers Noah. Why? What was it about Noah that set him apart from everybody else? Was he not a sinner like the rest? Had he not transgressed the same law of God as everybody else? Did he not deserve the very same fate? The answer is one word. It is the word grace. Look back at chapter 6, verse 8. But Noah found favor in the eyes of God. (laughs) Wow. That's the first mention of grace in the Bible. The free, unmerited favor of God, given to unworthy and undeserving sinners. It is the outpouring of his blessings in their life, seen through his mercy and kindness and salvation. 
Notice in verse 8 that Noah did not earn favor with God. Noah found favor with God. Listen to Deuteronomy 7, 7, talking about the Lord's people, Israel. He says, the Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples. For you were the fewest of all peoples, but because the Lord loved you. One man asked, what type of logic is this? I love you because I love you? The answer, this is the logic of sovereign grace. There is nothing in us that draws God to us, or excuse me, that draws us to God. Rather, it's God's favor given to the undeserving by his sovereign choice. Don't you understand? Noah was deserving. He deserved the same judgment as every other sinner, but he was given grace. And he sailed across that ocean of judgment safely in the ark of God. That is the expression of God's love and care towards those whom he chooses. Well, after a year on that boat, God spoke again to Noah in chapter 8, verse 16. He said, go out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Look down at verse 18. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by their families from the ark. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took of every clean animal and of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. The first thing that Noah did when he got off of that boat was to worship God. In 8.1, God remembered Noah, and in 8.20, Noah remembers God. <clears throat> he builds an altar, and he offers a sacrifice. Verse 20 tells us it's a burnt offering <clears throat> in which the entire animal is placed on the altar and is then consumed. Literally, the animal will be burned up until there is nothing left. This burnt offering, in effect, is Noah saying, God, I give you my whole life, all of myself, every part of me. I am completely yours. I understand that I deserve judgment, but having experienced your amazing grace, I get down on my hands and knees and I worship. And I give you my very life. The summary of that life is found in six, chapter 6, verse 9. It says, these are the records of the generation of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time, and Noah walked with God. In the light of the grace of God in his life, he gave himself wholly to God. And so we've seen that judgment is caused by sin, that judgment is delayed by patience, that judgment comes when mercy ends, and that judgment is avoided because of grace. Now, if you would allow me, I'd like to start from the beginning and briefly preach this entire message again. Up till this point, I've told you about Noah and his world. In the next few minutes, I want to talk about you and your world. Point number one, judgment is caused by your personal sin. In the same way that the people of Noah's day stood under God's judgment, so too do we. Because each of us has sinned against the holy God. We have rejected his ways and spurned his will and we live as if he doesn't exist. The Bible says that God will not tolerate sin and his wrath burns against the sinner. Number two, judgment is delayed by God's patience to you. Judgment is delayed by God's patience to you. It's amazing, here we are in Marietta, California, 2023 and the sun is out partially Right, And it's, it's a beautiful day. We have family, we have friends, we have house, we have school, career, relatively happy lives. Things seem to be going okay. This is the patience of God. He is waiting. He is waiting. He is waiting. He sent Noah to warn the ancient world of the coming judgment, and he sends people into your life to issue the very same warning. Right now, hearing this message is the patience and mercy of God in your life. This is the same message that Noah preached. 
There is a day of reckoning, and it is coming, and you cannot outrun it, and you cannot talk your way out of it, and you cannot do enough good to avoid it. No amount of good works can satisfy the debt you owe. All are guilty before God. You must acknowledge your sin, turn from it, and give your life to him. Three, judgment comes when your life ends. Judgment comes when your life ends. In the book of Hebrews, and in chapter 9 and verse 27, it says that it is appointed for man to die once, and after this comes judgment. When your heart stops beating... Each person here will stand before the great throne of God. And what awaits is not a flood of water, but an eternal fire. One that will consume the adversaries. But number four, judgment can be avoided in Christ. Oh, that's such good news. Friend, there is hope. God offers salvation. You walked in this morning not knowing what to expect and God through his word has opened this and he presents to you hope for your broken life. In the same way that Noah entered the ark and was safely carried across the the water of judgment so you can be delivered from the judgment of God. This is a picture for us. The picture of Noah in that ark is the same for us as the picture of Jesus hanging on that cross. He said, I am the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father but through me. When Jesus died, he experienced the very judgment of God for your sins. He took your place. He drank the cup of God's wrath that was reserved for you. And in that event, he paid the full penalty. God treated Jesus as if he had lived your sin-filled life. And God looks at you and he sees only the perfection of his son's life. The only way to be made right with God is to turn from your old way of life and in faith, in faith trust that his death, Jesus' death, is sufficient to cover your sins. And then like Noah, who was protected from the wrath and judgment of God by being inside that ark, so you and I can be protected by the wrath and judgment of God by being in Christ. That's the message of Noah. And that's the message for you. The Bible says that today is a day of salvation. Do not put it off. Do not wait for tomorrow. Come to Christ. Stop fighting. Stop running. And surrender your broken life. And he promises to wash your sinful soul and to heal your broken heart. Noah believed the word of God. Hebrews 11 says that judgment was coming and so he built a boat. Will you believe the word of God that judgment is coming and flee to Christ? Now there's one more point still at the bottom of your outline as we close this message really briefly, number five. You're not supposed to introduce new material in a conclusion, but I'm gonna do it because this is amazing. We'll just call this the promise the promise. Chapter 9, verse 11, God speaks again. He says, I establish my covenant with you, and all flesh shall never again be cut off by the water of the flood, neither shall there again be a flood to destroy the earth. That's the promise. I'll never flood the earth again. Verse 12, this is the sign of the covenant which I'm making between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all successive generations. I was sitting in Starbucks on Friday studying this exact phrase and there was a little bug on the window next to me on the outside of the window. And I just sat and stared at that little bug because I don't have a very good attention span, first off. But secondly, it dawned on me that the covenant of God that was made with every living creature extends to that little bug as much as it does to me. God made a a promise, a covenant, verse 13. He says, as a sign of this, I set my bow in the cloud. It shall be for you a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. That sign, that symbol, that remembrance of God's covenant to never flood the earth again is the rainbow. Rainbows are formed by the refraction of light in water molecules. Um, They produce a red, orange, yellow, green, blue, indigo, violet colors. They are beautiful. The rainbow does not belong to frosted Lucky Charms that are magically delicious. It does not belong to the leprechaun whose treasure is at the end. And it does not belong to the LGBTQ movement. 
Chapter 9, verse 13 says the rainbow belongs to God. 14 tells us that it is his bow, his war bow. Have you thought of a rainbow and the shape of this? The picture is that God pulls back his bow and releases his bolts, his lightning bolts and his fury and his thunder upon the earth. But there it says that he has hung that bow in the sky and it's empty. It hangs there for all creation to see. That is God's promise. It is his covenant. It extends to all people, all animals, to everything that has breath, that he will never flood the world again. This is the beginning of common grace, the care of God for all of his creation, that he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good, that he sends rain to water both the evil and the good. If you want to know why our world is filled with war and murder and evil, it's because God has promised to wait And every time it rains, we see his promise in the sky that he's waiting, and that he's waiting, and that he's waiting. But 2 Peter 3 says, even though he will not judge the world with water, it says the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire. And one day he will come and make all things right. Christian, there's one more special aspect in this promise. That rainbow hanging in the sky reminds us of the faithfulness of our promise-keeping God that goes beyond floods in the earth. We know that even the darkest of times, the most difficult of circumstances, that our faithful God will keep his promises to us. They are all yes and amen in Christ. And we know that in him, judgment has passed over us because it was poured out on the Lord Jesus Christ and we ride safely across that ocean of judgment, not in an ark, but behind the cross and the saving work of our Savior. He will return one day and it won't be to judge those who are his children, but to bring us home to be with him forever. What a promise. Let me pray and we'll finish. Father, thank you so much for this promise that you made. Thank you that you're faithful always to keep your word. Thank you that even when we are lost and ruined because of our sin, in your grace you have offered us yet again another chance through the Lord Jesus Christ who went to the cross offering himself so that we could be made right with you. Like Noah, we worship at your feet, clinging only to the promises that we have in Christ. It's in his name we pray, amen. Thanks for listening today. Sermon audio from the last three years is available by podcast, and a larger archive from Chris Mueller and Faith Bible Church can be found at media.faith-bible.net. And if you would, please leave us a review on iTunes. It helps a lot. Thanks, and have a great day.